Welcome to Chatham Community Church and uh, to a special Sunday, a Sunday where we have the kids in the service, kids K through five in the service with us. So if you are a kid in K through five and are usually in Chatham Kids and are with us this morning, I want you to know that I'm so happy that you're here uh, and I'm happy you came. I'm happy you're uh, in the service and this is your church. We are your community. We love you and uh, we're glad you're with us this morning. If you are a guest with us this morning, a particularly warm welcome to you, whether it's your first time or your first time in a long time. We're glad that you're here. I'd love to say hi to you at the end of the service. So I'll be under the exit sign in the back. Come say hi. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you found us, how you ended up in Chatham County, and what your experience was like this morning. Uh, like, maybe I didn't say this. My name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here. Well, there we go. Uh, I, was, I was with friends the other day, and, someone, and one of them asked me if I played baseball growing up. And before I could answer the question, another one of the friends who was with us said, uh, of course he must have. He's from Puerto Rico. Think of all the major league players that Puerto Rico has produced over the years. And he wasn't far off. Uh, uh, Puerto Ricans are extremely interested in baseball. We follow it. We play it. We find all sorts of ways of playing it. I remember being at school at recess time and figuring out who had brought sandwiches, not in Ziploc bags, but in aluminum foil so we could gather the aluminum foil make a ball with the aluminum foil, and then spend the rest of our recess time playing hand baseball with the aluminum foil. That's how much of a part of our culture baseball is. You can make a case that baseball is a national pastime in Puerto Rico, much like you could make the case that baseball is a national pastime here in the United States. I know it was declared that many, many years ago, but I think in recent years, football is giving it a run for its money. However, I think if you spend enough time in Puerto Rico and dig deep and pay attention, something else rises to the level of being considered a national pastime. Some might even call it a national obsession, and that is politics. There is never a time in Puerto Rico where there isn't some sort of political drama bubbling up and people having arguments and conversations about it. People in Puerto Rico are passionate about what they believe about political issues and they're, with, they're open, willing, and ready to tell you about it and to engage in spirited dialogue over it. And even though politics is ever-present in Puerto Rican life, you know there are clear signs when an election season is upon us. You may not see the signs, but you'll definitely hear them. See, as election season starts to roll around, these trucks, and what you see in the backs, if you can't see very clearly, those are speakers. These trucks will drive around neighborhoods. My memory tells me it's mostly on weekends, but I think that's just me being optimistic. Blasting political ads blasting music, music you can dance to, music you can move to, and political messages over and over and over again. And it's very indicative of what politics is like in Puerto Rico. It's loud, it's combative, it's in your face, it's intrusive, it is ever-present. Now, I haven't seen any of these trucks in Chatham County, and I want to say praise the Lord for that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't clear indications that we are in an election season in Chatham County. These are the indicators that we are in an election season in Chatham County. Yard signs, 
Uh, it feels like they're everywhere, right? I drove around the traffic circle the other day, and there were so many yard signs that I started to wonder if there were more yard signs in the traffic circle than electors in Chatham County. That's how many yard signs it felt like they were. And this is loud in a different way, right? It's not musical. It doesn't make you want to dance, right? Given the season we're in, maybe you wouldn't do the thriller to, to these yard signs, but it's loud in a different way, right? It's in your face. It's trying to get your attention. It's trying to take your attention away from other things or other uh, signs for other candidates. And it's one faction of the political climate here in the United States, which is also combative and confrontational and in your face. And you could say using fear to garner support, playing loose with the truth, demeaning the other side. And in that type of climate, it's not hard to get worked up when the subjects of politics comes up, but it's also not hard to get caught up in that sort of atmosphere, that sort of climate, that sort of environment, and find ourselves not just jarred by the political climate, but actually enticed, engaged, and involved in that sort of environment, right? Because that's just how politics are, right? That's how the game is played, and if we're going to participate in it, then we have to play it that way, right? What if there's another way? What if there is another way to engage in politics and in the issues of our civic society, of, our, of the state? What if we were never intended to fit neatly or live comfortably in the default political climate of any age, let alone this age? What if we were not meant to fit neatly into the default way that the politics game is played? Last week, we started a series here at Chatham Community Church called Counterculture for the Common Good. Throughout history, the people of God have never quite fit neatly into the ideological boxes of any age and of different issues. Throughout history, we've often found ourselves in the position of being counter to the prevailing cultural flow, to the prevailing cultural expectations, to the prevailing cultural norms in one or more areas, politics being one of them. And the point of being counter to the culture has never been to be combative for the sake of being combative or to be contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. Rather, rather... When we stand counter to the culture in the right spots and in the right ways, it's always because we believe that there is a better way. That there is a better way in Jesus that produces common good. The greatest common good for all in our society, not just us. The first century world that Jesus lived in and that the early church emerged in had its own political climate. It had its own options for how one related to the state or engaged in civic matters. It had its own sort of options for how to influence change and how to lead things. And yet, Jesus and the people who rallied under him had a different way to engage. And it was all under this banner that he is Lord. We talked about the lordship of Jesus last week. Rallying under the banner that Jesus is Lord created a different path, a different way for, to, for us to engage or for them to engage in all sorts of issues in their society, a way to stand counter to the culture. And that includes how they engaged in politics, how they engaged in civil society, how they engaged and related to the state. And that leaves for us an alternative 
an alternative to the way the politics game is played, an alternative to the options we are given for how to relate to the state and how to relate to civic issues. And it's a way that leads to the greatest common good for all. So let's talk about what that alternate way looks like, what it means to be countercultural in our politics and our engagement with, with the state and with civic engagement. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we're going to put it on the screen in just a second. But if you're wondering where 1 Peter is, 1 Peter is in the New Testament. That is sort of the latter half, if you have a Bible that has both Testaments in it. And you'll scroll through, you'll pass books like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll pass books like Romans and Corinthians. And it's near the end. If you get to Revelation, you went too far, you maybe inch back a little bit, you'll see letters that say 1, 2, or 3, John. You scroll a little bit back, a little further, or a little further forward, and you'll get to uh, 1 Peter. So let's look up 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, And I'll pull it up in just a second. Here we go. We're going to start in verse 4. Here's what it says. As you come to him, and he's talking about Jesus, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wondrous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him who punish the, to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, we're, we're reading something that's being written to a first century world, a first century world that in this part of the world is dominated and controlled by the Roman Empire. And there, there, there were sort of factions of people and how they engaged with the Roman Empire, but we're going to sort of cluster them into two major categories. There were the sympathizers of the Roman Empire who welcomed, greeted, collaborated, contributed, and celebrated, and then there were antagonists. And if you read the history of the era, there are a number of rebellions and revolts that rise up to overthrow the Roman Empire. So a major question, or try to overthrow the Roman Empire, so a major question for people is, are you with the Roman Empire or are you looking to overthrow it? 
And as this community of Christ followers is gathering and being formed all over the Roman Empire in the first century, it's likely that people who are joining this community are coming from those factions. There are people in the early church who are likely for the Roman Empire, who have supported the Roman Empire, and people maybe who have even participated in trying to overthrow it. And maybe, maybe as they're joining this new community, they're starting to ask, okay, this is what I think, and this is the group sort of I, I was part of, but what, what does this new community think about this? Is the new community of Jesus' followers going to be part of the supporters of the Roman Empire, or are they going to be part of those who are seeking to overthrow it. Maybe they're asking what following Jesus implies and how we relate to the empire. How are we going to relate to the authorities? How are we going to engage in civic life? Peter is speaking into this type of environment where still lots of questions are being asked and answered as the community is forming itself. And so it's noteworthy that peppered throughout the early part of the passage, there are terms like living stones, spiritual house, holy priesthood, chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession, people of God. These are terms of communal identity. And this makes sense because it's the early days of the formation of the church, of the people of God. And they're starting to develop what a communal identity is. And so Peter is using, he's giving them terms of what it means to be part of the family of God. They are coming from lots of different parts of society, from lots of different walks of life. They are from different ethnic heritages, from different socioeconomic statuses. They are from just different beliefs. And Peter is helping them craft a communal identity, which is important. It is important to have a communal identity for these people. But some of these terms, some of these terms feel like they're pretty high up there in order of magnitude. What do I mean by that? Well, all of us, or most of us, are part of multiple different communities or different organizations, right? Think about it. You uh, have a family. You live in a neighborhood. Uh, you uh, are part of a company or work at a job. Maybe you go to a school. Uh, maybe you're part of a social club. And all those have some sort of communal identity, right? In my case, it would be I am a part of Magnolia Trace in Pittsburgh. I live in Pittsburgh. I'm a resident of North Carolina. I'm a part of my family. I'm a part of Chatham Community Church. All those things have different communal identities, but they, they, they rate differently in order of importance for me and in how much they shape how I relate and engage. They all matter to some degree, but not to the same degree. Because when some of those come into conflict, when the demands of one come into conflict with the demands of the others, I will choose one of, or the other. And that will tell me which one is more important to me. That will tell me which one encompasses more of my life. We assign the different communities we're a part of different levels of importance. So when there's conflict, we know what we're going to prioritize. Terms like chosen people, people of God, holy nation, royal priesthood would seem to occupy a pretty high tier of magnitude. They would seem to encompass all of life, a top spot or a close to top spot. Because part of what Peter is trying to establish as he's shaping the communal identity of the people of God is that this communal identity that is emerging is meant to play a primary role in people's lives. 
It is meant to play a defining role. It is not just an added role, an ad hoc role. It is meant to play a primary role. And that's because to say Jesus is Lord, which is what the early community of believers are saying, is to give him our primary allegiance. We talked about this last week, and if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go listen to the sermon that the term Jesus as Lord encompasses all of life, every walk of life, every area. Peter is communicating that this idea of having Jesus as Lord is a critical piece. It's the one that shapes every engagement, including engagement with the empire. There isn't an area of life where the statement Jesus is Lord doesn't have something to say. Jesus is Lord. His Lordship has something to say in every area of life, including how we engage in civics and politics and in society. And Peter builds from that to drive home this idea that our allegiance to Jesus is both individual and communal. It is not just an individual choice that we are making or an individual, it is an allegiance as a community. Our primary allegiance to Jesus has individual aspects to it, but it also has communal aspects to it. It takes precedence over the demands of other allegiances, not because those other communities that we're a part of aren't important, but because this identity, this communal identity marker is the only one that can help shape how we engage with all of them. Right? Our job isn't necessarily going to tell us or, or, or identity with the company that we work for isn't necessarily going to shape or tell us how we engage in other aspects of life. And yet the identity of being part of the family of God, of following the lordship of Jesus can help shape how we engage with our jobs, how we engage with family, how we engage with school, There is no area where it doesn't have something to say, and that's why Peter calls it and sets it up to be primary. It doesn't mean that we neglect other areas. Rather, we are formed in how to rightly engage every area. There are times when tensions are going to come up. There are times where the allegiances that we have, the communities we associate with, that we align with, that we identify with, are going to be in conflict. And whatever is primary is going to shape how we respond, is going to shape how we manage the tension. I saw this live a number of years ago. I was in Cape Town, South Africa for a conference. And in a moment in the conference, these two people stepped up to the stage, uh, Daniel Sarid and Shadia Kupti, and they started talking. And she identified herself as a Palestinian Christian. And he identified himself as an Israeli Christian. This was 12 years ago. And if you know anything about that part of the world, you know that there is tension between Israelis and Palestinians. There has been for a very long time. There is today. And these two were standing up there acknowledging that their countries were in conflict, that there was lots of tension, that there was historic religious tension, that being seen together, right, because this is being broadcast all over the world at that time, might cause them problems back home. It might create negative situations for them. And yet... They had a primary allegiance to Jesus, which was individual and communal, which means that they saw each other as brother and sister first before they saw each other as part of another nation or as part of another ethnic group or as part of a historic religious tension. They saw each other first 
as part of the family of God, as a sister and a brother. And it meant that this was most important. That's why they chose to stand together. That's why they've chosen to work together on an ongoing basis to find ways for peace, to find ways for reconciliation, to find ways for justice and for the peace of God and for, and for the restoration of God to come to all their peoples, that all would be part of the family of God. They chose to not play by the script that society would have expected them to play the script of a Palestinian hating an Israeli and an Israeli hating a Palestinian, not associating with them. They chose to play by a different script. They were and are countercultural. Countercultural, and an individual and communal allegiance to Jesus is countercultural. It is countercultural because eventually it will call us to cross expected boundaries, to play by a different set of rules, to not fall into the way that society expects us to play any game, particularly the political and social game. Our primary allegiance to Jesus as individuals and as a community is countercultural. And it has implications on how society relates to us. Being countercultural has implications on how society relates to us and how we respond to, that, uh, to the way society relates to us. So let's start with how society relates to us. The passage has terms peppered in to let us know what we are to expect as a people of God who are countercultural. And it goes all the way from rejected to trusted, from precious to causing people to stumble, to making people fall, to being accused of wrong, to being talked about ignorantly. All these terms are here. Some of these terms are attached to the living stone, Jesus, but the passage makes it clear because it calls us living stones as well, that if Jesus experienced these things, we are going to experience them as well. And so what you see is a mix for how society relates to us. There are times where we will be trusted, where the message we are communicating will be trusted, where we will be welcome, where we will be seen as valuable. Maybe you've experienced that as well. As we follow the Jesus way, some people will respond positively to the way we live our lives. And as we follow the Jesus way as a community, some people will respond positively. Some institutions will respond positively, will be trusted by our communities, by the authorities, by the government at times. Sometimes we will be sought after. Sometimes we will be needed. Sometimes we will be invited to speak and we will be heard. But we shouldn't be surprised when that's not the norm. In fact, according to this passage, we should expect it. We should expect rejection at times. We should expect that people clash with us. We should expect to be talked about ignorantly. We should expect to be accused of wrong thinking or wrong doing. And it's not because we're looking to start something. Don't hear me say that, that we're looking to pick fights. That's not what we've been called to do. We should expect that kind of reaction because you can't go against the flow and not feel its pressure. You can't go against the flow and not encounter resistance. It is by design. Sometimes you will encounter resistance. Sometimes you will feel the pressure. And this is what Jesus experienced. Think about Jesus' life. There were times where people received him and accepted him and welcomed him. And there were times where people rejected him, turned their backs on him, lied about him, accused him. That was true about Jesus. It was true about his earliest, his earliest followers. And this side of heaven, it's what will be true about us as well. 
So the question is not whether we should expect to encounter resistance, whether we should expect opposition, whether resistance or opposition is an indicator that we're doing things wrong. It might be sometimes, but usually it isn't. The question is how do we respond to these situations, particularly to resistance and opposition. What is the Jesus way to engage? To engage with society, to engage with politics, to engage with civil discourse, especially when there is resistance or opposition, even if we don't feel it personally. Well, here we have some options. Do we conquer? An option is to conquer, to take over, to gain control, to shape everything so it is more in line with our belief or our way of being. No, no. The goal in how we respond to resistance is not to remove the resistance by being in control. Let me specifically address this idea that comes up from time to time, not just in this country, but it comes up from time to time all around the world and all throughout history. This idea that if we create a form of leadership, including government, that is especially Christian, everything is going to run well. Everything is going to be okay. That sounds really appealing. It sounds really straightforward. It sounds like a great way to solve all our problems, yet consistently throughout history, things have not gone well when Christians have grabbed for that kind of power. I wish it did, but consistently it has not. Consistently it has not. And here's the thing, Jesus had a chance to do this. Jesus was offered all the empires in the world, and he chose not to. His early followers give no indication that that was the mission Jesus gave them. Even though in the earliest days, thousands of people joined the movement and you could have foreseen some sort of uprising that would have caught the empire by surprise and would have at the very least secured Jerusalem for them. And yet they didn't do that. They didn't do that. The seeds of revolution, the seeds of uprising, the seeds of overthrow, the seeds of conquering were all there, and yet there doesn't seem to be even a hint that this is how they understood the Jesus way. So then why would Christians throughout history think that at any point in time it's what we should do in the here and now? To take the cross of Christ and wrap it in anything else wrap it in anything else, including national flags, is to distort the message of Christ. It's to dilute its power. That is what some of the people who talk, I'm not saying all, some of the people who throw out terms like Christian nationalism are getting at, and this is counter to the gospel. It's what Jesus and his earliest followers refused to do. And if they refuse to do, then we must question why we want to, why we might want to. Here's the thing, friends. We don't need to establish a holy Christian nation. We are already part of a holy nation. The passage says so. The passage doesn't say you will be a holy nation. It says you are a holy nation. But we are a holy nation that transcends local boundaries, that transcends territorial limitations, that stretches across the world and throughout history, not just on the earthly plane, but on the celestial plane as well. We are part of a people of God. This is not the option. Now, is the option to acquiesce, right? Do we just give in? Do we just go along? Do we play the game everyone else plays it? No, we don't give in. 
We don't participate with the lies, with the fear-mongering, with the slander, with the injustice, in the ways that people around us, including institutional authorities and government authorities, are going against the gospel. We must resist. We must find ways to speak up, to advocate, to look for change, and that includes getting involved in the political life of our society. We don't welcome those things in our lives and we don't simply let them stand. We don't simply take a posture of that's just the way things are. Now, do we retreat? Do we leave? Do we go away and let pe- leave people to their own devices? Or do we reject and hate the places that we're at? No. Do we disengage? Right? Do we simply say, well, you know, I'm going to be here, but I'm not really going to care, and whatever people do, that's on them. We're going to take care of ourselves. Don't hear me say that that's the option. Don't hear me advocate for a disengagement or a lack of participation in the social and political life of our society. No. So what should we do? How do we respond, particularly to resistance or opposition? How do we engage with the civic life of our society? How do we engage in politics? We follow the countercultural way of Jesus' lordship. And some of what this looks like is in the passage. Let me highlight some of the words. We engage as people who, even though they are present, even though they are engaged, even though they are part of the life, never quite fit in because their primary allegiance is elsewhere. That's what it's talking about when it says foreigners and exiles. We are consistently aware where our primary allegiance is, so we never quite fully feel at home or comfortable in any national system or political system, or political party, or national identity. We reject malice. We reject deceit. We reject hypocrisy. We reject envy. We reject slander. We don't participate in the things that corrupt the soul. And we stay engaged. We live lives that model the values of the kingdom. We live lives that model love, that model justice, that model hope, that model compassion, that model peace, that model kindness, that model self-control. We model true freedom. True freedom, the kind of freedom that aligns itself with the one who brought about ultimate freedom. That's what it's talking about when it says to live as God's slaves, to live fully aligned to the one who has freed us. We acknowledge and respect those who are in authority over us. That doesn't mean we obey blindly. Sometimes we have to resist. Sometimes we have to speak up, but we do so in ways that acknowledge that these people have influence, that they have power, that they have some agency. We don't pretend that we're not accountable to them because they are accountable to God. And whether in this life or in the next, God will hold them accountable to how they exercise their authority. We trust in him. Ultimately, friends, the way we engage counterculturally in our society, in politics, in civic life, is we live relentlessly committed to Jesus. We live relentlessly committed to Jesus and to engaging our world for good. It might seem, it might seem sort of very um, uh, pie in the sky. But the passage establishes that the more good we do, the more committed we are to this, the more people will change, the more it will influence, the more it will shape. I know it seems impossible. I know it seems unlikely, but time and time again, it is proven to be true that when Christians are engaged and fully committed to doing good, people can't help but acknowledge it. People can't help 
but see it. They may still lie about us. They may still accuse us. They may still ignore us, but eventually they will have to recognize something good is happening here, and maybe we need to attend to that. Maybe we need to turn to that. There's a movie called Of Gods and Men that demonstrates a different way to engage in political and social life. It follows a group of monks in Algeria during a time of conflict. And they're committed to this sort of town that is mostly uh, majority Muslim, though there are some Christians with them. And they have been embedded in this town for generations. They provide food, they farm and share food, they barter, they exchange, they relate, they spend time with this community. And then news comes that there is an invading force, some extremists, some Islamic extremists are sort of taking over different areas and they are particularly targeting Christians. And these monks start to, start to have dialogue. Do we leave? Do we leave? Now, everywhere they go, they're not just targeting Christians, they're targeting anyone who resists. They know they're under threat, but they know the town is under threat. This, this, this group is likely going to take over and they're starting, do we leave? What do we do? Do we disengage? Do we retreat? And they decide, no, we're going to stay. We're committed to these people. We're committed to this place. We're going to love this community. And the group of terrorists comes. They arrive. They arrive, and there is conflict between them and the local government, which is not great as well. It's also corrupt. It's trying to get them out. And the monks provide service. They love. They heal people who are wounded on both sides. They care for people. They care for people, and yet they are consistently under threat. In one conversation where it seems very evident that the Islamic terrorists in that community are going to take over, and that their death might be imminent, that in, in spite of them doing good to them, they are still coming after them. They have a moment, solemn moment, where they have to decide, are we going to go, or are we going to stay? They have to decide how they're going to engage with this political reality the social reality. Fighting back for them was never an option, right? Taking up arms was not an option for them. I'm not saying it's not an option for people, but for them it wasn't. Their only options were to retreat or to stay. And they choose to stay. And they lose their lives. They lost their lives, but they left a legacy. A legacy for everyone who was there and everyone who has come after and everyone who has heard their story. A legacy that you can engage not as people expect. You would have expected them to leave, maybe come back when things quieted down. You would have expected them to find ways to not help. They, they engage differently. I'm not judging whether it was the right choice or the wrong choice. I'm highlighting that there is a different way. What might that look like for us? To engage with the civic and political life, not as people expect, but as people committed to the Jesus way. To love, to peace, to joy, to compassion, to justice, to life. And what difference might it make? Let me pray for us. Gracious God, in this life and in the next, you have, prom you have promised, us, promised us life everlasting and goodness. Lord, you have welcomed us into your family and called us to make it our primary allegiance. May we do so at all times. Father, the way our world and particularly our country engages in politics and in civil discourse is anything but civil. Show us how to do it a different way, God. Lord, I don't want to consider that political life and civil discourse is a lost cause that is just destined to be evil, Lord. Use us 
in whatever ways we live to change the ways people engage, to change the ways people have conversation. Lord, may the relentless good that we do change our community, change our society, and change our world. In Jesus' name, amen.